All right, in chapter 8, God's invitation to live and love at a higher level. We know, <clears throat> even from the content of this chapter, what we're reading that's titled 1 Corinthians is a response to the church that gathered in Corinth. Paul, we're told in the book of Acts, was able to visit this gathering of people, was able to be there as the Holy Spirit brought together this new work, this wonderful work called the church. Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth, and then he went on as God would lead him, and later he received correspondence from this church in Corinth asking questions about a few things. That's what we've addressed in the first seven chapters. Uh, previously in chapter 6 and 7, there was the issue of how do you live in this world and not be of this world? How do, how do I live as a married person and how would I love as an unmarried person? How, how do I do this? And now we're going to see in chapter 8 how to deal with things that were common in the culture. Um, idolatry. We're told in the book of Acts, as Paul had ventured through and the others that were presenting the truth of the gospel, when Paul got to Athens, he, uh, he was waiting for the rest of the team to catch up. He's cruising through the marketplace, and he's just noticing these are a very religious people. Religious meaning, you know, religious is when it, it's man's effort to somehow identify or formulate an opinion of God, and then appease that God he perceives to be God. Does that make sense? It's really human effort extended up. It's what's so unique about what you have in Christ. It's actually God coming down to humanity with the solution as opposed to coming down with a, command, a requirement. Does that make sense? So anyway, it's, Corinth was a very religious place. And so Paul's in Athens and there's other places and he's cruising through the marketplace and he notices there's this one idol statue. And it was said under the, inscrip the inscription below was to the unknown God. So it's kind of this situation. They were polytheistic, meaning they had all these different gods. And okay, well, what if, what if the God of pleasure is unhappy we haven't treated them right, then we're going to be, we're not going to experience pleasure. What if the God of money is upset, then we're going to have no cash flow. Well, what if we miss the God and he's the big God? Well, I don't know, make a statue to the unknown God. They literally had to the unknown God. And so they're that religious. And so that's what's happening in that world at that time. And and the Apostle Paul, he then begins to share and talk about because idolatry, the building of idols and the worship of idols was very common. And you'll see as we go through this study, it's, it's not then but not now because sometimes people think that. Well, that's, it's different for us today. We're more advanced. It's different. No, it's really not. We'll see it. So let's read verses 1 through 13, and then we'll come back and take a look at each portion Chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Verse 4. 
Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other god but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. All right, well, that's a lot of questions probably just kind of popped up as you were observing that and hearing it as I read through. Let's just go back and start with verses 1 and 2 and work our way through. We have in verse 1 really a key to this chapter. It's a key, to, I believe, to the entire letter. It's a key to the Christ-like life we are invited to. I chose to say it that way because I can't say it's a key to the Christian life. Why is that? Because it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd word, Christian. Because your experience, my experience, there's a lot of people that use the word but have no, just no definition, no framework, no boundaries for it. If you're not anti-Christ, you must be Christian. Well, no, not really. And you think about, you know what I'm talking about, where, where someone can be labeled or use that term as Christian, and it, it, it can mean all, all kinds of different things. I have leaned towards and look at more accurately, the phrase is really this, Christ-like life. Because we're, we're called to be Christ-like. You know, do Christians let you down? If, you, if not, you've never met one that's real. I mean, they're going to let you down. But you don't follow Christians, Correct. The very essence is we follow Christ. And hopefully there's some continuity, some consistency, some synchronization. But ultimately we follow Christ, Christ-likeness. And so I say that to help some because it is confusing. I, I know some who struggle in even coming to faith because they've seen those who use the term Christian and, and there's nothing Christ-like about their life. It's just they speak as if they were Christ-like. So... All that, not a rant, it was intentional. I actually have it in my notes, okay? So it wasn't, you know, a rant, okay? So here's the thing. It's a key to this entire chat. This, it's a key, key to the life. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, loves, love builds up. You see, as we read the entire chapter, it begins there. And that, that theme will be carried throughout, clear up to chapter 12, and actually throughout the remainder of this chapter. Or this letter. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. 
Because, see, knowledge puffs up, then pops. Have you ever uh, overinflated a balloon? I'll give you a demonstration without a balloon. So is what you do. And then it blocks your view, and then it blows up in your face. Right? Isn't that what happens when you over... Well, a wrong attitude towards knowledge does that. A wrong attitude towards knowledge. We've got to make sure that as we go through this, we don't pull a portion out and say, oh, I'm going to build off that. You want to understand as much as you can as you mature and grow what we could think of as the totality of Scripture. We don't want to just stand, oh, knowledge puffs up, knowledge is bad. No. Actually, you're told throughout Scripture to get knowledge. I'll put a little plug in for a practice that I have used. Each day, I read the proverb of the day. So if I'm on the 13th, I read Proverbs 13. It's a system, so to speak. It's an approach that keeps me on schedule. And so I read through the Proverbs regularly. I've done it for over two decades. I find it to be very beneficial. Very beneficial. I, I believe every business owner, every leader, every person really should, every believer should do that. Not just to check it off, but to soak up the truth. And here's what you'll find consistently. Whole chapters are given to get knowledge, get understanding, get wisdom. It's even spoken of in first person like Wisdom is speaking to you in some chapters. So it's really important. The Bible says to do what again? Get knowledge, get wisdom, get understanding. Knowledge is essential. Knowledge helps us to grow. But notice this. Knowledge must be based on, founded, and rooted in love. Love builds up. Knowledge blows up. And you can understand the context. When you think you know and you got it all figured out and you know more than anybody, you're kind of a jerk. You know what I'm saying? You're just kind of offensive or obnoxious and you think you're fine, but everybody else thinks you're a jerk. I go through this every week. I think I communicate well sometimes, but I realize in conversation with my wife later, eh, I was kind of like a jerk. But, you know, I'm working on it slowly. Knowledge has to be rooted in love. That's the essential, very essential element, um, even what Jesus presented to us. Now, notice it says in verse 2, anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing as he ought to know. So I don't know what your particular interest is or as a person, whether maybe it's music or maybe it's a hobby, maybe it's a study of science, or whatever. We all have our little tilt, right? Our old thing, we really, our curiosity. We have a, it's a peculiarity, and we, we like it. But the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. And anything you dig into, as you uncover it, you're excited, and that draws you in, and, you know, it's appetizing and it's satisfying. And, but then you're like, man, I, I thought as I dug into this, but now I see all this, and wow. And you dig in further and further. And so it, it's, a, it's a fool that thinks they've got it figured out. Because almost every area of life, the more you get, the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. Well, sadly, what happens is sometimes people don't admit that. They discover a little, 
And then they dialogue with people, and they want the people to know what they've discovered, so they get puffy, big-headed, wanting other people to know how much they know. And ultimately, it, it doesn't work well when your attitude's wrong. Some become puffy, inflated, floating above the foolish, uninformed masses, and they know nothing, the Bible says. Actually, they need to have the air let out is what needs to happen. They need to come down to earth a little bit. And I think most of us in some area or another, we've been that way. Our hobby, our interest, we want to talk about it. We want people to know we know. And then as we start realizing, nah, it's, no one seems to be interested. And then you realize it's not that big a deal. It's, you could still be passionate, still be excited, still kind of know it. So here's an analogy I, I want to share. Uh, it's probably tilted more towards men than women, but you'll, you'll bear with me, ladies. Air in the tires of a performance vehicle is a problem if there's too much. Too little air, you know what you call that? A flat. Now, if you're running with just enough to not be flat, but it's too little air, it's going to affect it. Too much air, that's a problem too. My background is motorcycles, and, you know, when you're racing or even doing, I rode on the or dirt most of the time, very little on the street, but... On a motorcycle, overinflated tires lead to big problems. See, if you're just moving along, idling along, not going too fast, it's tolerable. It's maybe a little noticeable, a little maybe a rough ride. Yet when the trail gets difficult and there's too much air, you lose traction. And when you lose traction, it's basically losing grip and you crash hard. Too much knowledge and not enough love is the same thing. Too much knowledge. You think too highly of yourself, of your opinion, and you know you get to thinking too much, and next thing you know, you're going down. You're going to crash and crash hard, and then we see it happen because we get to thinking sometimes too much of ourselves instead of just stopping. What about a little love in it? Don't think too highly of yourself, of your opinion. Rather, use knowledge to love and to build up. That's the core. So you see, this is where it's going to carry through. It carries through the entire gospel message. That knowledge, your knowledge of Jesus Christ, what he's brought to you and taught you, your knowledge of eternity as opposed to when you thought of world, of, of like temporally. All this knowledge is, is to be, you know, kind of oriented in the base and the foundation of love. Because it says in verse 3, if anyone loves God, this one is known by God or known by him. So let me give you a summary of that. God is not impressed with your knowledge. You're not going to impress him. He's not going to go, whoa, wait. No, are you kidding me? I, I, Dan, I didn't realize that. I mean, I'm here, sitting here just, you know, kind of considering another universe and just kind of putting my creative skills to, to play. And, and then you tell me that? I did not know. Oh, Dan, Professor Dan, thank you. You're so smart. God is not impressed with your knowledge. There's nothing that you can know where he's going to go. I didn't know. Okay? It's really, it sounds so silly, doesn't it? It's really important that you know that. That he's not impressed with what you know. He's glad that you're growing. He's pleased with your love, though. He's pleased with your love. When you grow and you learn and you know, it's to be used to love. 
Because your relationship with God in many ways, it's not absolute and exclusive, but in many ways, your love for God is determined by the way you love people. And sometimes people, they don't want to agree with that, but it is true. The capacity to love is within you as a born-again Christian. He who first loved you, he, he's within you. The, the love that God has and is, the love that came, the sacrificial love that endured the cross, the love that rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, conquering death and hell, that love is the very love that resides in you when you're born again. That now is the capacity, the enabling, the empowering, the equipping for you to live a life of love. And, and you open the door even for more knowledge, as long as it's to be rooted in love. So God is, is aware of the love. Verse 4, now concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we've already read it. I want to just touch on what that speaks of, because we may think, to a certain degree, we don't have idolatry. Let's talk about what it is. Let me share a bit. An idol. So an idol would be for, for your eyes, if you would visual, in the sense of what's mentioned here. It's an image. It's a representation of belief. It involves not only image, but also hope. You wouldn't just have an image, but think it's a you know, hope. So there's, it, it speaks of image and hope, uh, depiction, and confidence. So realize an idol is not merely a statue on display, because that really literally, as we I've already referenced in Acts, that's what they had. They were meant to trigger a response, a realization, a remembrance. Oh, worship this. An idol is the object of your hope. An idol is that which you look to, you hope in, you would even in many cases speak to this idol. But realize, as you've seen from this text, we're reminded there's one God, a triune God. One God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triunity of God in one God, and He's the Creator God. He's the one worthy of our devotion. There's just one God. An idol is diverted devotion. Let me, let me talk about what devotion is as defined in dictionary. Devotion is defined as love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for a person, activity, or cause. So love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for a person, activity, or cause. So devotion is due to the God who made you and gave you what we call and know to be the gift of salvation. He is worthy of our praise. He is, as we sang, worthy of it all. If we don't direct our devotion to him, because you you're devoted to something, whether we consciously agree or not, it's just that our actions show it. And so we're, our devotion logically and rationally and clearly should be to him, but if it's diverted, it's taken somewhere else. See, people... Christian and not yet Christian and those who really are not even interested in things, people are easily distracted, agreed? Easily deceived, easily drawn into a diverted devotion. We can easily get off course is what I'm saying. 
diverted, think of it as a channel, a direction, a flow, or devotions to go. But devotion gets diverted. You, you've seen it. You've seen traffic be diverted. You've seen water flow be diverted. And we know our devotion can be diverted. We touch on three things. The, I believe this. I, I think it stands alone. The primary diversions in our culture, profit, pleasure, and position. Profit. Let me use the definition of devotion, and then you can, you can insert this. Profit. Love, loyalty, and enthusiasm for money or finances. Is that possible that could happen in our culture? That there would be a greater commitment, a, a deeper interest, an active expression for monetary gain more so than spiritual life. Is it possible? Every one of us has to say yes. Because we know in our own lives there's been seasons like that and challenges in that regard. Uh, unwillingness to honor God according to biblical principles as we manage the resources he's entrusted to us. See, profit's a fascinating thing. Money's a fascinating thing, agreed? The love of money is a root of many kinds of evil. And so what happens among Christians even? A reluctance to put into practice biblical principles in regards to managing money. Here's the thing. It's not on your birth certificate. Um, I'm pretty sure your parents didn't withhold from you. But you weren't, you didn't come into the world with a bank account. Right? You didn't get primed. You didn't, you didn't start with, you know, born on this day, net assets, 1.2 million. You started with nothing. And a matter of fact, you didn't even get to, to make yourself a success. Some have this term of like a self-made man. Have you ever heard that cultural phrase? Well, let me just say something and not to be too, well, anyway, I'll just say it. <laughs> you didn't pick what point in human history you get to live. You didn't pick what place on the planet, what continent to exist on. You didn't get to pick what democracy or what you know economic social world you're in, right? I mean, that's not some no-brainer. So therefore, it's hard to take credit for all that you've done when, when you were just put here at a point in time. You didn't pre-exist; you just started here. And so, with that, you, there should be some gratitude and realize I, I, I'll do with what I, I make do with what I got. But even what we have is flows through this fascinating interaction of humanity and resources. And we can't take credit for what we accumulate. We can be good stewards and manage it well. But when you check out, somebody gets your stuff. You don't get to take it with you. This is what's so silly about money and profit. We can get so drawn into it. And no American Christian is going to say, well, I'm kind of idolatrous in regards to finances. No, most of them say, I'm just trying to be a good steward. Hope so. But I know the struggle's real. I know this reality is true, that this is, is, is it's a diversion in our culture. Not only is there profit, money, that can be a diversion of our devotion, but pleasure. Consider this. The love of, the loyalty to, and the enthusiasm for pleasure. That would be idolatry. Would it be present in the world today? I'm not going to call you out by name, but I know every, but I know a lot of people in here that this is an issue. And those that I don't know you by name, it's your issue too. So I didn't leave anybody out. It's all of us. 
there's a pursuit of pleasure that you wrestle with. And we try to figure out, how do I honor God? How do I not make this pleasure the most important thing? And how do I live a life in regards to where I'm at? How do I do this without being pleasure-seeking or comfort-oriented? And it, it's easy to get diverted and get off track a little bit. And go, oh, man, how do I work this out? But maybe you're that person who's like, honestly, truthfully, I really don't care about money that much. I, I utilize it as a tool. It's no big deal. I, I'm not really into comfort. I'm okay with a little discomfort. Okay. But you long for, you seek after, you're eager to have promotion or recognition or some type of title. And I believe that happens. You know, some of the people, yeah, you know, they use their poverty as a way to promote their humility, and they're so prideful about it, they, they worship it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, wow. It's just, I'm just saying these examples, and I know I've been reasonably effective at being all-inclusive. We're all involved in this. We're all at risk of being idolatrous. With that being the case, let's make sure we don't divert our devotion but rather we direct our devotion. So, but what's the problem? Why can't we have stuff? You can. The problem is never having stuff. The Bible's very clear. Some people were very wealthy. It's never a problem having stuff. It's when stuff has you. It's when the stuff has you, and then you find yourself unable, unable to release it. Well, you know, well, it's okay to have position and title and some joy, yes. And pleasure, yes. Some cash flow, yes. But know this, according to what we're reading, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. We know that these things cannot provide eternal hope. None of them will. They cannot provide eternal hope. Suppose you had more money. Suppose you had more pleasure. Suppose you had a you know, greater recognition. What does it profit a man if he would gain the whole world and it cost him his very soul? If you traded in salvation, which you wouldn't say it that way, but it could be done. You could have that mindset. Like, I don't want that. I want something here. Profit, pleasure, position, or nothing in regards to eternity. That's the point. Nothing in regards. It's actually really, it's, so, it's one of these fascinating things that I find among very successful people. Very successful people that are not interested in God. It's like, what are you going to do when that's no longer you? Oh, yeah, you can, you know, jump and run and you're athletic and you do all this stuff. And do you know what happens later? You get fat and weak and ugly. That's going to happen. Unless you, you either change the standard by what you measure by or you face reality, you're going to be sad. Gravity and longevity have a negative effect on the human body. Agreed? Okay. So why put my hope in all of this? knowing, absolutely knowing, it's going down. It's illogical. But many people, they've deluded. They, 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 they just they kind of worship it. So here's my encouragement. Just love the Lord. Know that these things happen. Don't let these things be the main thing. And he goes on, you know, he's saying, because you know, there's one God, and it's through him that we have life. There's one creator, one Lord, one God. And so know that. And he's, that's what he says. We know that. You know that. The vast majority of the people listen to this message, you know that. Live with that reality. Walk within that truth. Now, let's move on to verse 7. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Not in everyone that knowledge. 
Not every believer understands what I've just talked about. Not every believer understands that these pursuing these certain things have no eternal value, no eternal gain. Let me, let me make sure. I want to make sure I'm clear on this. I'm not saying you should strive for mediocrity in this world. That is never a Christian goal, ever. According to Colossians 3, whatever we do in word or deed, we should do heartily unto the Lord. If you're a business owner, you should do the best you can do with what you have to work with. If you're an employee, you should be the best employee you can be. Honor God in all that you do. If you're a child at home, honor your parents. You just do the best you can with what you've got to work with. So we should never like use it as a, you know, bringing it down. Christians should be the best employees, best employers, and really the best, you know, morally and ethically people around. So does that help you? Realize you can't go like mediocre. Mediocre is horrible. I, I just I don't, I don't have time to get into my whole mediocre message. But then again, I don't want to deliver a mediocre message. But. Not everybody has this understanding about idols and eternity and temporal reality. Not every believer understands that. Yet, what affects it? But when you come to Christ, you bring you. You're there, okay? You have personal history. As you grow in Christ, you have a measure of maturity. You have knowledge developing as you grasp it. And it affects how you deal with this new life. And not everybody starts at the same spot. Does that make sense? You know, some people, they seem to come to faith and just flourish almost instantly. Whereas others, the work's underground, the seed's planted, the life is there, but it's more roots than above ground. And so it's hard to measure. And he's saying, listen, not everybody is, 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 you know, has the same understanding about this issue of idolatry. So he says there in verse 8, Food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So he's talking about the food that was offered to idols. We're going to catch up with that. In the chapter, I believe, 10 and possibly even into 11. And so I won't delve into it too deep right now, but I will just say this. Choosing to eat something as a restraint with awareness of God doesn't make you more spiritual. It doesn't make you superior. If you choose to eat, like in this case, like, well, I'm not going to eat that food that's offered to idols because, you know, I, I just I don't want to. Okay, good decision. Or I'm going to go ahead and eat it. Okay, good decision, whatever. It doesn't make you better or worse. Do you see the text? It doesn't, it just, that's not the point. You, what you intake doesn't make you a more spiritual person. It's really more who you are before God. How do you love? Verses 9 through 13, what we have is we've looked at that, already read it. Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block with those who are weak. Love is what makes liberty work. Liberty, freedom. You have freedom in Christ. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. We're going to see that again. We've seen it in chapter 6. So you can do quite a few things, but there's not a good idea on some of those things. And so what we know, we have this liberty. But freedom must be contained by love. Otherwise, freedom becomes chained to selfishness, and you no longer have freedom. Let me say that again. Freedom must be contained by love. Otherwise, freedom becomes chained to selfishness 
and you no longer have freedom. I used to say, I'm not going to church because I have the freedom. I wasn't a believer. And here's my logic. I, I don't promote it. I'm just saying it was my logic. I work Monday through Friday. It's actually a jip. I work Monday through Friday. I get two days off. Five and two, I didn't find fair. It's just the world we live in. So Monday through Friday, and then Saturday, I got to fix broken things and go have some fun. I'm not wasting a day sitting in padded church, drinking bad coffee and stale muffins. I'm not going to church because it doesn't make sense. Why would I sit? Why would I devote the day to that? When I, that's, that's one out of seven. It doesn't make sense. I had this freedom. But you know what was happening? I was actually changed to selfishness. I didn't have freedom. I, 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 I would not consider the very thing I needed. All the while claiming liberty. All the while, hey, I'm not going to be one of them churchgoers. You know, they have to go to church. They have to do this. Guess what? Because I didn't have love, my liberty was shackled to selfishness. And even when you're born again, if it's not founded on love, your freedom is really more about you being able to do what you want to do, and it's guised as Christian wisdom. Is it? You know what I'm talking about? There's just times it's like we got to be real. Like, man, is this liberty out of love? Love is what makes liberty work, freedom work. And so verse 9 is telling us, you know, be aware. Pay attention. Error on the side of empathy and understanding, okay? So you cannot imagine all the potential, but you can see the situation. It says, you know, let's beware that someone, this liberty of yours become a stumbling block for those who are weak. And they use the topic of, you know, eating and you're eating in the temple and somebody comes in and sees you there. They know you're a leader. So therefore, they're, they think that they can do what you do because you do it. And so it could stumble them. I would use, let me put it together in an example that would probably make sense for us. So, as a pastor, I know I, I have influence. I know I'm at a point of public observation to a certain degree, and I'll share with you why I find that a privilege. But suppose I, I'm talking to a person, and they're sharing with me that they really have struggled with alcohol. It's tore up their family. It's tore up most of their neighbors. They're just really, a, it's, and them personally, it's really a weak point in their life. Like, man, I'll pray for you. And then in the flow of conversation, they tell me, yeah, I usually I go to this restaurant, and I, it's a challenge because there's, they serve alcohol. But, dude, they got the best burgers in town, and they're a good price. So I go there, and I, I just drink water, and I eat a burger. Like, man, that's smart. Now, I have the liberty. I decide I want to capitalize on that as well. I go to that restaurant, and I realize, man, this is, this is the, they do have good burgers. And I choose to sit at the bar. And I have liberty. I have freedom. I can have a beer. I choose to have a beer. But I know that person frequents that place. I know that person has issue with alcohol. And I have exercised my liberty, knowing even though he may come in at any moment, I'm telling myself it's okay. It's not. Why? Because love is the key to liberty. And so if I do what I've just described, and he comes in and sits alongside me, now am I not implying to him, one beer won't hurt. One beer is okay. It's no big deal. And as I leave, and he's still sipping on his first one, and he doesn't make it home because he couldn't finish the 11th one, 
am I in some way influencing him? Yes, I have. And I don't consider that to be, that's just not, it's not works, it's not pressure, you just, it's just learning to be honest. Just pay attention. That's what it's saying. Be aware, pay attention. I would have been better off to say, you know what, hey, um, let's try this other place. Maybe You see what I'm saying? It's a simple analogy. I hope it makes a connection for you. It's not pressure. Verse 10, if anyone sees you and this whole thing comes down, and won't you, won't you weaken them? You, you kind of just, in a healthy way, do what if. What if. Obviously, I, I think you understand. I have that influence. So when I go certain places in town, I know I, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm under observation. I'm kind of under the microscope. It used to bug me. Now it doesn't bother me at all because I used to live more duplicity. I lived, used to live with more, well, I have the right to. I have the right to go to hell. That's what I have the right to do. Jesus saved me from that selfish, humanistic, you know, me mentality. And he's teaching me what it means to walk in liberty, walk in freedom, and walk in him. And so I have the right, yeah, to, to actually serve him as well. What does it hurt to give up a little in order that someone else may grow? Let's look at verse 11. Because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. That's the key that removes it from pressure and brings it to opportunity. Your knowledge. If you know, like you can't imagine all the potential ways you could stumble someone. Agreed? There's a lot of ways you could stumble someone. But when you know a tendency, a propensity, a weakness, you want to be aware of that because that will affect your decisions. Many years ago, I was serving at the church we were at, Calvary Boise, and uh, I was the elder and, and serving as the youth leader, youth pastor, technically at that time. And so we're meeting off Broadway. It's about this time of year, I believe, summer. And church is over. We're heading to the other part of town. We have two vehicles. Kim's heading home with kids. I stopped by Albertsons to pick up some, some stuff for a barbecue. It's hot. It's summer. So I pull up. I get in. I get my cart, and I'm shopping. And, and I, this will show you how long ago it was. Some of you may not even know what I'm talking about. But they used to sell this thing called a wine cooler. Okay. Now, yeah, some of you are alcoholics, I can tell. So, no, just kidding. So, wine cooler. It was just a thing a long time ago. It was like, it's a, it's a knockoff to beer, basically. But as I go by the aisle, I'm like, dude, I, I want them to drink. It's like, I'm into, I can't have it. I'm, I'm of legal age. I, you know, so I, and, and this is in my mind as I'm pushing the cart, smiling at grandma or whatever, pushing along. And I think, you know, yeah. So I grab a wine cooler, put it in my cart. I go about 10 feet, like, ah, man. I turn around and go back, put it back. I keep going down the aisle. I'm like, wait a minute, I have the liberty. I turn around and go back. I put it back. I pick it up again. Like, it's like, I, I literally, and anybody who watches is probably going, dude, this guy's probably had too many already. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, I just set it back down like this. I, man, why, am I, why do I make life so complicated? It's so weird. Like, I, I knew I had the freedom, but in the back of my mind, I knew there's other people that I influence, and this is, I'm not stretching at all to make the point, this is the, just exactly what happened. I go around the aisle, past the end cap, and here comes Nate Sari, Mark Green, Dan Fife, and I think it was Chad Ellis. Now we're talking almost 30 years ago, and they're in the youth group that I just got done teaching. 
and you know what they do. You see, when you're older, when you meet someone in the store, you covertly judge them by the contents of their cart. When you're younger, you don't. There's no covert anything. They're rummaging through everything. Hey, what do you got for us? They're going through my cart. Guess what's not in the cart? Wine coolers. Guess what Nate went through in life? Nate, I know this. Nate's family was wrecked by alcoholism. Nate's parents split up. Nate went through a tough stretch of life. He actually visited me here just a few years ago. He's a great brother in the Lord. But I know, I know, I, I know. Had I had that in there, it would have conveyed to him it's okay. And I believe it would have sent him the wrong direction. Maybe not for a long period or maybe for a long period. Do you see the whole point to all of this? It's my knowledge. I knew. I want to consider others as I journey through life. It's not about what you can't do. Realize it's about what you can do. You can help someone. You can consider others. You can encourage them. And I'm going to... Let me just make your life more uncomfortable. It's not my goal. It's maybe a result. But it's going to, you know, it's good. If mature Christians considered young Christians more, I believe we would see more growth within the body of Christ. If mature Christians, majority of us here, would consider young Christians more than we're concerned about some of these things I've already talked about, more, not be so concerned about, you know, profit and position and pleasure. If mature Christians considered young Christians more within the body of Christ, we'd see more maturity. Let me say it this way. Most of you moms will totally relate to this one. Don't leave the toddlers in the kitchen and complain about the mess they make on the floor. Does that make sense? So as a young Christian, is like they're growing, but then sometimes older Christians complain, well, they just seem to walk away. They're not doing well. They don't read the word. Like, well, what's wrong with them? It's like putting a toddler in the kitchen. Kim, you remember? You don't have to say anything, but I know this, I know this happened in our life. We didn't want to get up that early on Saturday. It was a late Saturday night, and we got young kids, and, you know, if any parent thought, you know, I just want to sleep in a little bit longer. Knock, 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 knock on the door from a toddler. Does, Yes, you can have some cereal. Just don't make a mess. Dumbest thing you can ever say. How can you say yes and don't make a mess at the same time? You turn them loose in the kitchen. And you come in and there's Cheerios everywhere. And you're whining and complaining. What a mess. Look what you did. Don't leave a toddler in the kitchen and complain about the mess. And, and the spiritual truth you see. I believe there's all of it. We can do more. We can be a part of other people's lives. And quite honestly, it's not optional. Now it sounds like pressure. You've been waiting all day. You're visiting. And now you just, now I just now got to legalism. It took me a long time, didn't it? It's not legalism. It's the word of God. When you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. That's a pretty strong word to you and me as mature, maturing. You're not mature. You're maturing Christians. When we don't consider other people and we just plot along claiming our freedom in Christ, we're actually sinning against him. You actually sin against Christ. That's one of the strongest statements you'll see in Scripture is regards to personal decisions. Consider James chapter 4, verse 17. James chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, it's not a problem. 
Oh, I might have misread that. To him it is sin. It is sin. When you know to do good and you choose not to do it, that raises the bar for you and me on accountability, does it not? It's one thing about liberty and freedom and opportunity. But God says, yeah, those are all cool. But you go against me when you don't consider other people. You're actually opposed to me. You're sinning against me. And most of us are, as Christians, we're, we're Christ, desiring to be Christ-like. We're sensitive to that word, right? It's worse than a four-letter word, sin. It's like, oh, I don't want to sin against him knowingly. Well, this is what he's saying. Hey, you know, just be aware. Back to verse 13, and I got to shut her down. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I just would say, determine to love God in the way you love people. You know, if you have somebody over to your house, you, you invite them over, and you invite, you know, Arnold, you know, the vegetarian, and he's coming over, and you know he's a vegetarian, what are you going to put on the menu? It's about time he learns how to eat a hot dog. Really? I mean, yeah, you have the liberty. It's your house. You can select the menu. But maybe you would say, hopefully, you would truthfully say, okay, I won't go as far as tofu, but we can focus on salad. You know, you're going to make an adjustment because you, you're, you, you, don't, you just don't make it a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's not worth stumbling somebody over. And you may find there's other health reasons and dietary reasons that they're so weird. You know, why they would not have a dead animal to eat. Oh, I know. I just grossed some people out. Listen, I am not. I only eat animals that eat vegetables. So I'm a pure vegetarian, technically speaking. So just kidding. <laughs> I realize somebody's like, mm -hmm. Determined to love God in the way you love people, because really we know the way you love people reveals your love for God. If there are certain groups you don't like, if there are certain people you won't be around, you have a problem. It's your problem, but I would suggest dealing with your problem, because the way you love people is the way you love God. As the worship team comes up, we'll turn to John chapter 13. I am running a little late, and we can't do that because I love our children's ministry and our teachers and our kids. John chapter 13, Jesus said this about you and me, to you and me, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, have loved you, you also love one another. He went on to say, by this, all the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. What's the distinctive? What's the quality? What's the, the attribute? What's the expression that stands out above all else? We can eat meat or we can eat vegetables. We can do this or we can... No, no. This is how the world will know that you are walking with me in Christ's likeness. You'll have love one for another. We stand up and let's pray together. God, thank you for the word today and the simplicity to it. And the complexity we know in, in applying it. And, and yet, Lord, you are so beautiful. And how you teach us how to walk with you. You conform us into your image and likeness as we put you first. It's really not about us, but what you will do in and through us. And I just thank you, God. Let's pray. If you're here today and you're, 
you're really not sure. You, you're not sure if you're even born again. And I just want to encourage you. It's good that you consider that. You consider that you, it's good that you wonder about that because that means you're really thinking it through and taking it serious. But I also would say, now is the day for salvation. Just put that question behind you. Recognize you have a need for God's forgiveness. You have a need for God. And the only way you can approach God, the only way you can receive forgiveness is through what Jesus has done for you. And so it would be simple response to his work. God, I believe, Jesus, you are God and you died and you rose from the dead to pay my sin debt. I don't have all the details, but I hold to that truth. I put my trust in you to forgive me of my sins, to teach me how to live this new life you give me and know how to walk in the power that you speak of in the love I've heard of, in this life that you offer. I put my faith and trust in you, Jesus. May we all do that. Continue to put our trust in him as he transforms us and shapes us into his image and likeness. It's in your name we sing, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.